Hello, I'm Shelly Till. Welcome to the Too Much Grit to Quit podcast, where I speak to some of the greatest athletic minds about overcoming adversity and building your grit muscle. My guest today is a two-time TEDx speaker and CEO of Second Chance Athletes. Please welcome Daryl Stinson. Hey, how hey, are you? I'm doing amazing. I'm ready to go. Thanks for having me on. Too much grit to quit. See, I said it. I said it. it. I got You're it. I'm ready. Practicing. You, I'm ready. If you sing I, it, I, it, it just works. It just rolls right off the tongue. I, got it. I, love, I love the title, by the way. I wish I would have thought of it. What is Second Chance Athletes? It is a athlete transition organization that provides coaching and mentorship to former and forgotten athletes. We also do uh, transition preparedness workshops for current athletes. So uh, the vision came from when after I transitioned out of sports, and I know we might get into my story, might not. Uh, but I, I graduated with the right degree but I didn't have the right experience. So I was able to work for Central Michigan University in the marketing department, um, communication department, and um, was able to be successful there. And because I worked for university, I could retake undergraduate classes uh, because it was the only thing I had to pay was taxes. And so I, I retook classes that I passed because I knew how to cheat and I was an athlete, um, but I, I didn't have the experience for it. So I had a second chance to succeed in life without the demands of sports. And uh, second chance athletes is the way we pay that forward. And speaking of second chances, um, I know your story as a college athlete, um, you mentioned Central Michigan football with your little NFL sweatshirt on. Fire up chips. <laughs> that leads me into this. Uh, I'm going to ask you this on the front end of this interview. When you hear the word grit, what does it mean to you? Mm, the ability to keep going when you don't feel like it or when everything is going against you. Like grit is that energy that persistence that tenacity that keeps you going when the going gets tough it's what i talk about in the fifth step of our athletes transition roadmap i call it persistence mm. i should have called it grit <laughs> well it encompasses a lot of things and i love asking that question because everyone has a little bit different take on it and an experience with it and we'll get into your personal experience with grit but when you as you've defined the word grit who outside of yourself exemplifies that to you Dang, I was so going to choose me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, who, who exemplifies grit to me? Well, you know, every movie we watch that is like Rocky or like some superhero that's getting this butt kick, you know, like I they have extreme amount of grit. Like they that's what they do. They model grit, you know. Uh, but if I had to pick a person, probably my dad. Um, and my mom for, for two different reasons. My dad was an elite athlete as well, but he grew up in a family of six and they were very, very poor. So I was like poor, but they were like dirt poor. Like they shared socks mm. on Christmas. So that just, you know, and their dad was never around and how he was able to, you know, become a, a really good division one athlete. He got hurt too. And then just become a father when he had no model took extreme amount of grit. He's doing very well now. And then my mom, because man, golly, she, you know, I'm one of three, uh, my sister's dad just never came around. So she lived off of what she could afford, um, for a job and off my dad, my dad's child support. And she made it work. I watched her go years and never buy not one thing for herself. And she just always figured out a way to make sure that, that we had enough. And so she has extreme amount of grit. Amen to that. She sounds like it. And as you mentioned, your dad's uh, story and his upbringing, we have, we have, uh, that's another thing we have in common. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, you and I in terms of uh, our parents and their upbringings. Is your dad uh, black too? No, I'm no. Just, kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Outside I'm just of joking. outside of skin color, Daryl experience. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm in a good mood today. You're funny. Um, so take me back to Central Michigan and your experience there, um, because mm. you're you're your company of second chance athletes for more than just the reason that you expressed yeah. earlier. Cause you yeah. yourself had yeah. a couple second chances and third. I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like every other athlete I wanted to be, no, not like every other athlete, like very few athletes. I wanted to be the best of all time. So that's important that people know that. So it wasn't just making it pro. I wanted to like, I wanted to be equated with Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Tom Brady, the best of the best of the best. Cause I feel like I had the ability uh, naturally to do that and, and the work ethic to match it and the mindset to help me get there. And so, you know, I was ranked number three in basketball um, <clears throat> going in high school preseason, you know, number one was Draymond Green. I was ranked number nine in the Midwest for my position at defensive end. So, you know, I was good and I, I did really well on track too. So I was, I was a big guy, 6'5". Um, I ended up playing weight, ended up being 265 pounds and I, I ran a 4'4". So I was super fast, super big, super agile. And so it wasn't a matter of if I was going to the league, it was just a matter of when. So I had the big head and not just in size, but in ego. And um, that balloon got crushed at the end of my freshman year when I was trying to impress the upperclassmen with how much I could squat, came up the wrong way, uh, pinched a nerve in my back, ruptured a disc. And I didn't know the difference between being hurt and being injured. So I, I kept playing on it for like two, maybe three months mm. until the pain just got so bad. And one day I slapped my left leg and it was like jello and my right leg was straight muscle. And I was like, this isn't, this isn't right. <laughs> so I went to get an MRI and I had to have emergency back surgery because my left leg was going to go paralyzed because of how long the nerve damage had continued. So that was supposed to be it for me. Uh, the I st- they were coaches were going to honor my full ride scholarship, and I get to focus on education. They respected me as a leader. I can come around football whenever I want it. But sports was uh, not just what I did; it was who I was, mm-hmm. and I had too much grit to quit. Yeah. See what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> so I begged the coaches to let me come back on the field and play, and um, I signed a liability waiver so they would not be liable for my injury or my death. And I was not supposed to have physical contact within 12 months of my back surgery. I was starting within six months after my back surgery because I had too much grit to quit. I would walk around campus with my abs tight, never flinching. Like, so I did that for months, never moving beside this like steel posture because I just wanted core strength so that it reduced the impact on my back. I was doing chiropractic, uh, work probably four or five days a week, physical therapy, seven days a week, two times a day. I was getting epidural shots in my back. I was getting nerve killings. I was doing anything that I can do to numb the pain to continue to play the game. And finally, I got introduced to this thing called opioids. And when I took opioids, I was like, hmm, I can't feel a thing. Let's take more of this. And so I got addicted to opioids. And then um, I had to pay for my medical expenses. So I, have you ever seen a medical bill? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's expensive. <laughs> yes, it is. And, and so, uh, the only way I knew how to pay that amount of bill was to sell drugs. So I sell drugs all throughout the state of Michigan, specifically, uh, weed and Adderall. 
um, all throughout the state of Michigan, got involved actually in the international drug operation to uh, afford my medical bills, all in the hopes that one day when I just get to the NFL, I have enough money, I can get out of this lifestyle and I can just continue on the path that I was going to get, get some doctor that's going to like do like replacement surgery on my spine and I'll just be, you know, still be the next Tom Brady or the next whoever, right? And long story short, uh, I put my body through all that hell and going into my senior year, my opioid addiction got so bad to the point where I was taking so many that uh, it was thinning my blood to the point where every time I made contact on the field, my nose would bleed. Mm. So the coaches were like, we don't know what's going on with this guy. They kicked me out of the, off the team. And uh, I, I got pissed and I got depressed and I threw a bunch of stuff and I felt like they gave up on me. And I felt like I failed myself. I, I knew that I could be successful at something else other than sports, but I didn't think I would be fulfilled by anything else like I was at sports. And um, at the same time, um, while I'm dealing with this depression and started to have these suicidal thoughts, uh, my girlfriend, who uh, was my high school sweetheart, I dated for four and a half years, was planning the marriage. We had our kid's name picked out and all that stuff, left me and got engaged to another man. And the way that I found that out is while I was in my car one time, um, getting ready to attempt suicide I reached out to her and she was calling me by my um um my first name she's like oh it's okay Daryl and this and that she used to call me babe and I was like so I dug around called some friends and I found out that that's what happened so um that was it to me um she didn't she obviously didn't care about me um because I wasn't being I was gonna I wasn't gonna be a professional athlete anymore uh nobody was calling me checking in on me anymore nobody's asking me for autographs anymore so I that belief that I didn't matter outside of sports and that I wouldn't be fulfilled um, by anything other than sports was was deeply ingrained and so you know that led to multiple suicide attempts wow what a powerful story um and the fact that you're here <laughs> to tell yeah. it is is a miracle in in and of itself absolutely how, you know, to continue on with that, you're still here. So what happened? What saved yeah. you? And how did you turn it around? Yeah, um, I hit rock bottom. So people always ask, what advice do you have? I say, uh, do as I say now, don't do as I did. Mm -hmm. right? So I, I didn't see, seek out help. I, I, I never, <clears throat> one, one tip that I give to people is you have to be vulnerable. You oh, have yeah. to tell people, um, a lot of people, when they're facing suicidal thoughts, won't necessarily say that. They'll say things like, oh, I'm not feeling, I'm feeling down or I'm feeling a little depressed. Two different things, okay? The way a person responds to someone who says they're feeling depressed is way different than if they, how they respond to somebody when they say, hey, I'm thinking about ending my life, right? right. So vulnerability is the Batman signal for love. And mm -hmm. so the more vulnerable you are, the more people can love rush you. So I tell people you got to practice vulnerability, but I didn't do that. I bottled it in. I threw some little hints out there. And the worst part about throwing hints is that when people don't respond to my hints, like I was having suicidal thoughts, then I, I it validated my insecurity that they didn't care about me. When in reality, I didn't really share what was really going on. So anyways, um, uh, yeah, I, uh, um, I would mix my alcohol with pills and, um, you know, hope that I wouldn't wake up the next day. One day I remember swallowing a whole bottle of oxycodone and uh, and still, uh, you know, woke up the next day. Uh, and um, one day, you know, after a couple of suicide attempts, my um, mother uh, convinced me to come see her. I don't even know how she knew. Mm -hmm. And I'm at her house. She's trying to get me to eat and it wasn't working. And I get 
she goes to sleep and I get in the car. Um, when she goes to sleep and tried to go into it all, she must have heard the screen door shut. So she ran out, put herself on the hood of the car. And it was something about seeing her on the hood of the car that was like, I, I can't just like, you know, drive away and hurt her. So she asked if I would let her get me help. And I did. She took me to a psychiatric unit in uh, Detroit, Michigan. I didn't know it at the time. I thought it was a, um, like just a hospital. I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about psychiatric care. And um, the doctor started asking me questions, you know, why do you want to kill yourself and all this stuff? And I just said, leave me alone. I just want to die. And uh, she uh, um, never seen me like that. And uh, at the time I had been crying so long that my eyes were swollen shut uh, and I could only open them just to see a little bit out of the bottom. And the reason why that's important is because there was a nurse, I call her the nurse with green pants, because that's all I could see is she had on these green pants. She comes in my room, she wraps me in her arms, and she says, I don't know who you are. And I don't have jurisdiction to be back here in this part of the hospital. But God sent me back here to tell you that you need to say yes to him. And I'm like, that's not going to heal my back. That's not going to do anything for me. Get away from me, weird lady. And I just kept screaming at this lady, like, leave me alone. I just want to die. And my mother said that this woman prayed for me for like 15 minutes and it felt like five because I was just bawling the entire time. She left. She said she would come back. And about probably 10, 20 minutes later, my grandmother um, had driven from Jackson, Michigan, was about an hour and a half west of where I was at in Detroit. And uh, she burst through the door. She's out of breath and she goes, <sighs> she wraps me in her arms. She's like, honey, I've been praying for you all the way here. God told me, you know exactly what to do. You need to say yes to him. Oh so it was the same request a second time from two different people who didn't talk to each other, didn't know each other. And I couldn't deny that it was God's way of trying to reach me. But grandma was religious. She was supposed to say something churchy. And so I was just like, leave me alone. That's your God. That's not going to heal my back. It's not going to bring back my girlfriend. I just want to die. And my grandma prayed for me for about five minutes and she backed away. My family's there. All my family's there at this point. And they never see me like this. I'm always the energetic guy. I'm the athlete that everyone thought was going to be successful. They don't know how I got like this. I had went from 275 pounds to 200. 19 pounds in four weeks because of all my suicide attempts. It's super depressing. It's so heavy in there. You literally, it feels like wet blankets is weighing down on everybody. And the best way I know how to describe this part of the story is that I just heard this still small voice, what I, what I would call the voice of God, um, say, won't you just say yes to me? And it was something about hearing um, our father's voice that gave me the strength to just mutter out like a yes. And I, this true story, I don't, it felt so good um, that that depression that I was facing for years broke off my life. Uh, my eyes actually got healed. I could open them and I could see again. And I didn't know what else to do. I just kept screaming, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And so the doctor comes in because he hears me yelling <laughs> and um, he bursts through the doors. He's like, what's going on? And I'm like, I was running from God and I just said yes to him. And he's like, all right, get this guy upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that was the day that my life changed. That and, uh, is incredible. Yeah. yeah. That, I mean, wow. Wow. Yeah. What a testimony you have. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And, um, you know, I still had to stay in a psychiatric unit for a little bit. Um, but that was it. Everything was different. I was a completely different person. My heart was changed. 
um, I actually went to church that that happened. I want to say on the Friday, I went to church that Sunday and the pastor was preaching on marriage. And he says, I feel led to change my sermon. And he talks about suicide and depression. Oh my! So I'm just bawling my eyes out. And so, you know, yeah, that was it. And my life was transformed. Um, I graduated, um, went and worked for the university. I uh, was part of a phenomenal communications team. We won two higher education marketing awards. I launched out and helped uh, United Way uh, with marketing and donor development, started my own marketing consulting company, left that, got involved in pastoral ministry, revitalized the church that was 17 people and dying to a thriving church, left in 2017, moved to Atlanta, Georgia, started Second Chance Athletes and started helping athletes transition out of sports, telling my story more. And, um, you know, now two-time TEDx, author, uh, two-time two TEDx speaker and author of Who Am I After Sports and connected with some amazing people like yourself and am able to just help a lot of people. And my mission is to help 100 million people uh, break that depressive state of mind. And so I believe that collectively we can do that. So that's my goal. I love it. I love it. What a, what a vision you have and yeah. uh, a divine vi vision certainly. Um, Gracias. You, uh, so your business is second chance athletes. And yeah. I love this because, and we've, we've talked about this prior to getting together here today, but you do a thing where you, you help athletes or you try to figure out this, um, high athletic identity. Am I saying yeah. that correct? The correct term is strong. I used to say high all okay. the time, but then, um, I came across a guy named Dr. Richard Schuster, mm -hmm. um, who has this assessment that helps athletes, um, determine you know how they're um, on the field and off the field performance is doing and how they're doing like emotionally yeah and long story short he was missing the athletic athletic identity scale that we were using like makeshift in an excel spreadsheet mm -hmm. and uh i showed it to him and then he had uh all these scientists tested and back it up and the correct term is actually strong <laughs> so tell me more about that what is what qualifies as strong athletic identity and why does it matter yeah. So athletic identity is the degree to which an athlete identifies with their role as an athlete. Okay. So if they only see themselves as an athlete and they don't have a more holistic view of themselves, then that is a stronger degree of athletic identity. The reason why that's important is because it is the single most important indicator to determine if an athlete will struggle with some of the common uh, things that athletes face in transition, like depression, like bankruptcy, like divorce, like anger, like uh, alcoholism and drug abuse. So if we can assess an athlete to see how strong their athletic identity is, that helps us to cater our level of services to them. So it's, it's dramatically helpful. And this is why when we get asked the question at Second Chance Athletes, do you work with college or pro or high school or Olympic athletes? My, my response is yes, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because it's not about a level of athlete. It's about a type. Okay. And we specialize in helping high athletic, strong athletic <laughs> identity athletes um, really detach their identity from sport grieve their their athletic experience which is important mm -hmm. a lot of times uh, people who are in the athletic transition space uh give an athlete another high to chase yep. and never help them grieve what they've been through mm -hmm. and and what i say to people is like imagine being married for 20 years getting divorced and remarried within a year 
and then expecting no baggage from the previous marriage to come into that relationship. And it's not going to work. It's the Excellent same analogy. thing with mm-hmm. athletes. And so uh, we really help them process their athletic experience. And then we do some of the traditional stuff about, you know, how you take the skills that help you be successful as an athlete to be successful in your life after sports. And then just how do you be successful in general? What is the prevalence of strong athletic identity? <sighs> Clarify that question for me. What do you mean by what is the prevalence? How, I, I mean, I know as an athlete, you're, yeah. you've been an athlete, but for someone that didn't grow up as an athlete, how, how much of an issue is this? Oh, God, Lee, it's, 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 it's so much of an issue that people um, have yet to step into it. I'll give you an example. Like here locally in Gwinnett County, it's a very uh, prosperous county, very affluent county, but we have a huge homelessness issue. People know it, you see it, but they kind of just kind of push them out to the outskirts and nobody really wanted to address it because nobody wanted to see how big of a problem it really was. Mm -hmm. Because, nah, Gwinnett's rich. Well, anyways, we did a survey and we found out, well, there's a lot of homeless people (laughs) and it is out of proportion to our population. And so we have to do something about it. It's the same way with um, this athletic identity issue. There's a lot of people who are struggling. You can read some statistics like uh, for 78% of NFL athletes end up bankrupt or divorced within two years of their career. That's an indicator. Uh, they talk about some of athletes, which the data is so skewed around college athletes who end up turning to drugs and stuff because of athletic transition. Like I say it's skewed because they literally ask them, do they feel that way? And nobody's going to be like, yeah, I use drugs, NCAA, you know? <laughs> and so the data is very skewed and it's hard, but it is a huge issue. And if you ask a former athlete, they'll tell you, my yeah. peers are struggling. Mm-hmm. And so um, maybe that's some, a role we can play together is we can get some accurate data and do a, a real international um, search. But mm-hmm. look at a guy like Michael Phelps. Listen to what Kevin Love is saying. Listen to what Dwayne Wade said about how, man, look, I, before I even retired, I signed up to get a counselor because this transition thing is hard mm-hmm. to know that there's an issue. And I think it goes back to what another thing that you said earlier, it's that you were lacking too. It's that fulfillment. Oh, yeah. Nothing that there's nothing uh, that you can find without helping, without processing yeah. that gives you that same charge, that same passion, purpose, fulfillment. I mean, yeah that you want to jump out of bed in the morning to go do. Oh yeah. And, oh yeah. you know, and it's, so when you don't have it, it's, you're just constantly searching for something to fill that void. Oh yeah. I love that you are approaching this from the grief process because it truly, it truly is a grieving process. I'm curious Mm -hmm. if you've noticed um, a difference or, is this more of a male versus male athletes, female athletes, or do the, do, do we all experience it the same way? Strong athletic identity. It comes back to that every single time. Cause that was, I, I, if you would have asked me about two years ago, I would have told you, Oh man, males struggle way more because we want it better. Yep. And it's not true. It's not true. Um, I, I will say, because I will say there's probably a bent towards male sports, um, number one, there's just more more male athletes, right? When you look at the data statistically on an international basis, but also because of the attention that male athletics get. And listen, I have three daughters, so I'm all for the like change that narrative and stuff like that. Like Yay. I want my I want my baby girls to get paid because I know they're uh, at least two of them are like really athletic, and if they so choose, they're gonna like you know play at a high level. 
my other daughter is really artistic. She'll be really great in that area. But so I'm all for it. I'm not saying it's right, mm-hmm. but I'm saying it exists. Right. And it's just it's just when when there's let's say you take let's take our, our women's basketball team at CMU. Right now we've had a couple of people go pro from our from our CMU. I, I know one of them. One of them was a former client of ours. And you take that and you would see their games when they were winning, like like more than the men's basketball team. And still stadium is like half full. Whereas you take the, the, the males and it's like packed out and all this stuff. They're not even winning like that. Right. And not saying it's right. But I'm saying that that it's a bigger gap of uh, it's a bigger slap in the face when you have that many people supporting you. And then the silence is more yeah. deafening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so that's the only thing I would say in terms of women versus uh, men. You, you mentioned you have three daughters. So yeah. how are you, given all of this knowledge and experience that you have, yeah. how are you raising them differently yeah. in terms of trying to make sure they don't have this high? <laughs> yeah. Uh, number one. Because this, this, is, this is not just for you. This is tips to people listening because is, so many parents want their kids to just be the next Michael Jordan. Yes. You know. Yeah. And my dad did it to me, right? Because my yeah. dad was like, my, arguably, my, so this is funny. So my dad was a freak of nature athlete. Every, there's a lot of people who say he's be, he was better than me, more athletic than me, more talented than me. My dad was 6'2". He was a safety. He ran a 4'3". He was stacked. I mean, the guy high jumped like seven foot something crazy. Okay. He's a freak of nature. But Jackson came out with this uh, top 25 list. <laughs> And and he wasn't on it, and I was. So that's all I'm saying. So you have that over him for the rest of your <laughs> just, life. Just throw it out there, Dad, if you're listening. <laughs> um, so okay. So number one, don't live through your kids. Okay, um, it, it, it's terrible. Them succeeding doesn't equal you succeeding. It just doesn't. Um, and and some people, feel, my dad really felt like if my my son made it, somehow that will heal this wound in my heart, this hole in my heart for me not making it. It wasn't gonna do it. Uh, the second thing is to realize that even if they play and then the next Venus or Serena Williams or Danica Patrick, one day they have to transition. And the question becomes, what are they going to do after that? So they are more than their sport, even though their sport can play a very good role in their mm-hmm. life. So that's an advice I get is, is you have to start to take interest in their life. And here's the deal. Celebrate it just as much as you would celebrate it as them hitting a game winning shot. Mm-hmm. That's the challenge. Because whatever you whatever you reward gets repeated. So if you're like, everybody comes to the athletic games and everybody throws money and you get brand new shoes and all that stuff, we'll spend thousands of dollars for you to be successful as an athlete. And then you want to like play the violin. It's like, mm, let's get you a used violin, you know, go practice in a room where nobody cares. You have to reward and celebrate um, to, at the same level you would any other skill or ability. And so you do those things. Um, I think it's also important to help an athlete know that the love you get, give them is not dependent on their performance. Mm-hmm. And, and I can't stress that enough. You know, it was all about the game. It was all about, I mean, that's all we talked about. And when people talk to me, that's all they talk to me about. You know, yeah. hey man, I see, I seen that play you did, bro. I see you, I see you, man. You played Jeremiah Gray, bro. You, yo, Scott, that's that, and all that stuff, and that's all they see is is, is that's all they talk about. I still have, so we people have to, to this day that do that. that don't they walk up to you and say, "Oh, yeah. I was at the state tournament when you guys won that championship, <laughs> and I still have the ticket in my wallet." Isn't that crazy? I mean, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, I, I mean, it's like, oh, 
thank you, but you know, and, and for years, it's just, this is Shelly. She's the basketball player, yeah. the basketball player, Shelly, yeah. the basketball player. Yeah. And, and I get it. Like I get it because those are memories, right? But please just be intentional about saying, like, what's going on in your life today? Right. I actually just had an article released just today, this morning about um, my organization and the book and all that stuff. And people still hit me up talking about, hey, man, I remember when you were playing. I'm like, dude, the article is clearly about <laughs> the fact that I don't do that anymore. And you yeah. still want to talk about sports. And I get it, man. And actually, I talk about that in the book because that is a place of bitterness for some athletes. They're so mad. They feel like people don't care about them. They only care about their ability. And I talk about why people view the athlete that way. And I actually give, I I believe it's uh, five different types of fans. It might be four. Um, I forgot. I was kind of, I have to look at it again. But anyways, um, it gives an athlete uh, a way to process their fan brace. And that's part of the grieving way. Because a lot of athletes, former athletes, are, are, are bitter towards their fan base. They're bitter towards their administrators. They're bitter, yeah. b- uh, bitter towards their coaches. Um, when really, um, if they view them differently, it helped them walk through a process of forgiveness. So, and is that in yeah. the book? Daryl? It is. It is. It is. I'm so, I'm so itching. I, I want to like find it right now so I can give it yeah, to yeah. you, but, but I don't know if I can find it that quickly. Um, uh, but ask me a different question while I look Tell this me, up. I'm just curious. Um, cause that's, that's gold right there. Even yeah. for someone who didn't have high athletic identity, I think, because what happens is what I've seen in a lot of the people that I've worked with is there have, there was either one really high, uh, intense situation, or it was a repetitive kind of what I refer to as low T, like small T, small trauma, things that have just, that occurred over four years. And they, at that point you just built, they just built up this bitterness and, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to do this in spite of you, whether that's the coach or the administration or teammates or whatever. And so they go away with this bad taste in their mouth and they, you know, when they should be celebrating everything that they did to get to that point and to mm-hmm. get through that and to thrive. And looking back at that university, that's the only thing that comes to mind is I, I'm so pissed at them. Yeah. Or I, oh, yeah. I can't stand them or I'll never go back there. I'll never yeah. give money to that school. I know. Uh, oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, and feel free to steal this. I don't care. I always say this athlete transition is such an underserved space that there's no competition for me. So I'm not like the guy that we got to be the best in the industry. Like I want to be, but at the same time, I'm more like concerned about getting more people to help our athletes. Cause every year this problem exists mm-hmm. and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And don't think it's just the guys who are two, three times right. out of the league or the girls. I, one of my clients is like 60 years old. She's been on sports for a long time, but she never transitioned. Yep. All right. I found it. Okay. Yes. And, and I'm going to share it with you, but, but quick, quick backstory to why this is so personal to me. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm over it now, but maybe I'm not over it. <laughs> I just got choked up a little bit. Um, so remember I told you going into my senior years when I got kicked off the team. Yeah. Uh, one day my roommate, um, his name's Steve, he comes in and this guy, he never dresses up. Uh, he, he's dressed in a uh, suit, the kind of, uh, a black dress shirt with a black tie, you know, uh, looking business professional. And I'm like, where are you going? And he's like, I'm going to the athletic banquet. Are you not going? I'm like, I didn't know it was today. Oh, no. They didn't invite me to my senior banquet. Oh. And I was ouch. so angry. Listen, for two years. <laughs> and finally, I went to my coach and I said, man, 
y'all didn't invite me. I can never get that moment back. So I ended up going to my banquet two years after I graduated and they used to give us this helmet, you know, that you you had your number and everything. And and they gave me my helmet and they wrote my little highlight. It wasn't the same. My point is I dealt with that bitterness for two years, eating me up, resenting the coach, mad at people, mad at the players that they never like said anything. And so this helped me to go through a fan forgiveness process. So there's four types of fans. You ready? You bet. There's the bandwagoners, the business persons, the admirers, and then the true fans. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, bandwagoners. These were the people who only liked me, talked to me, followed me, coached me because I was good at sports. After my career ended, they found it a different player to support. They weren't friends to begin with. So there was no reason for me to get depressed because of this, their disloyalty. The second type is the business person. These are the coaches, agents, media, administrators, the bosses, et cetera, who interested me was business only. They saw me as a business investment instead of a human being. To them, there wasn't much a difference between me and a capital stock. <laughs> I realized that once you reach a certain talent level, sports becomes a business. There's no value in holding grudges and becoming bitter. I had to learn to stop taking their exit from my life so personal. Business is business. As a businessman myself, I could understand why they wouldn't want to pour time or money into someone who couldn't produce a return on their investment. I'm not saying I agree with their beliefs, but relating to them was my best way to release the bitterness that was from my heart and helped me to move forward to my journey of accepting that my career was done. You want the other one? You want the other two? Yes, please. Okay. I'm locked in. The admirers. These are the family members, friends, and teachers who just didn't know what to talk about to me besides sports. Seriously, someone once asked me how football was going five years after my career ended. Even when I explained that I was done playing and had moved into a new career, they still continued to ask me questions about sports. They couldn't help but to see me as athlete. It's like my size and my physique were so abnormal to them that sports were all they could think about. (laughs) These are the people who always come up to me and make jokes like, hey, how's the air up there? Or ask me, how tall are you? With large eyes as if their neck bent fully backwards, as if I'm a tall as giraffe or something. I never understood these folks until I met a guy who was seven six. I'm I'm six five. And I asked him the same question. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I did the same thing with my neck, you know? <clears throat> and that helped me to forgive. Uh, and then the third, uh, the fourth type is the true fans. These are the people who will be my fans forever because they like me for who I am more than for what I do. The further I get away from sports, the more I love these people because they still ask, they may still ask for my autograph and believe in whatever I'm doing in my life. Um, when I was a popular athlete, I got t- tired of people asking for my autograph. Now I love it. It makes me feel special. And you're probably think, you're probably thinking he didn't associate attention with value. You're right. I did. But you see, I am still a work in progress. Don't judge me. So understanding those different types of fans helped me to kind of put each person in their own bucket. Mm-hmm so that I can see them for what they really were and really relate to them and their journey instead of being bitter and only viewing it through my perspective. I love that. That is so powerful. So powerful. Thank you for sharing that. No what other, what other uh, kind of topics do you touch on in the book? Oh my gosh. So it's an overall f- five-step transition, right? Okay. So we got accept, believe, discover, pursue, persist. Acceptance is all about how do I get rid of the desire to still want to be an athlete, right? Mm-hmm. And how do I process what I've been through? Uh, and and that, that what I just read to you about the fans is in that chapter. Yep. The second step is to believe. It's all mindset stuff. You cannot achieve if you do not believe. 
Right. So it's all about believing that there is a better future than there is a brighter past. It's how we eliminate this term glory days from the athlete's vocabulary, because glory days is evidence that the best days of your life are like somewhere back there. Like who lives like that? The best days in my life, I don't care if you're Michael Jordan or whoever, the best days of your life is not behind you. They're in front of you. Why? Because you take everything that you accomplish, everything that you learn into the next day. So you can't help but to get better. So it's eliminating that mindset that my glory days are back there and that I peaked as an athlete. So accept, believe, discover. Oh, this is like everyone's favorite part. This is like, how do you find what's next? And I believe uh, your career is what you do. Your purpose is why you do it. Yes. So this is 22 purpose discovery questions that help me get to a place of true self-discovery and clarity over my life's highest, most unique purpose. Okay. And I, we can't go there right. because there's 22 questions and, and they're deep and it's deep mm -hmm. work, but I, but I do have a course and all that stuff. Okay. The, so we got accept, believe, discover, and then we have pursue. It's not enough to just know that you have something better. You have to go achieve it. Right. So now we talk about transferable skills. We talk about calendar. We talk about morning disciplines. We talk about some more mindset stuff. So this is how do I actually go out there and achieve it? And then the fifth step is to persist. This is grit. Right. And so I, I focus really heavily on mental health habits because I don't want people to burn out on the author of success. Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you are more important than what you do. And so it's all about self-care and mental health. And how do you develop that persistence to keep going when the going gets tough? So accept, believe, discover, pursue, persist. That's the athlete's transition roadmap. And that's what we talk about in the book. And there's a lot of my story woven into it as well. Sure. So how does the book differ from how, the work that you do individually with athletes? Yeah. So I, I, I don't do a lot of individual work um, through the book anymore. So that's more in a group model. But the real difference is hands on number one in mm -hmm. um, per, personal touch. You know, it's one thing to read it. It's another to, to be able to vent that to a human being. So do you have and, a course, Daryl, or you, you, do you yeah, just do group coaching do. around that? Tell me, that's what I'm getting at. Tell Both. Me about that. Yeah, both. I have a course um, and I have uh, a group coaching program as well. Yeah, that walks athletes through sports. In the course, um, I've got two courses. So some people, I, I haven't cracked this this uh, algorithm yet. Some people literally just want to know what's next. They, they don't want the, the grieving process, although they need it. Mm -hmm. So because I was like, it's a ticket into the door, it's better than nothing. I created a course that's just the purpose discovery. Okay. Right. So, so it's 20, it's chapter three, but I teach it. I, I share more story around it. It's in depth and it helps them get to a point where they develop this unique purpose statement at the end of the course. Okay. And then uh, the other course is the whole process, right? So it's each step it's taught, it's short lessons, and then they can just go through it at their own pace and then ho hopefully shift powerfully into that new identity. And then the group coaching model is just that we teach uh, all of this stuff, plus a little bit of leadership mm -hmm. um, to help them be successful. I love it. How can people get in touch with you if they want more information or if they want to, you know, join one of your courses or get your book? Yeah, just just go to DarylStinson.com, uh, you know, and you can uh, you'll see all of my stuff there. And then you'll see the a, a tab that says athletes. It'll take you to Second Chance Athletes website with all their stuff. So, yeah, I'd say I'll put that in our show notes, too. Yeah, there you go. All the show notes, baby. Um, awesome. Well, Daryl, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> Likewise, by the way. <laughs> I hope that we, I hope this is just the beginning of, um, you know, a friendship and a, and a collaboration. Cause I know that we both have that athlete, um, in their future 
and in our hearts and what, what we can do to try to help heal some of those past emotional injuries, as I refer to them. Mm. Um, so I look forward to that. But before I let you go, if you could leave the athlete out there that's listening to this, regardless of what age they are and how many years it's been, who is feeling some of these feelings, what would you say? All right, I'm going to say two things, one to the current athlete and then one to the former. Uh, to the current athlete, dream big, dream beyond, okay? Dream as big as you want to dream. Go as far as you can go as an athlete. Do not develop a plan B because we're not going to prepare you to fail, okay? But I want you to dream beyond. I want you to think about what's going to happen after you are in the Hall of Fame times three. And then that way, if transition happens before you, you were ready for it, you'll have some form of preparation mm -hmm. and your identity will be more developed. To the former athlete, I will say this, you have not peaked. I want you to do an exercise. I want you to talk about your athletic career, literally. What was one of your favorite moments? And then I wanna talk about your life now. And if your energy level drops, if you're like, oh man, I used to do this, I used to do that. And then you talk about your career and you're like, yeah, I'll just go to work. You have a problem. The problem is that you haven't fully transitioned and it's okay mm -hmm. because a lot of other athletes around this world are facing the same problem. But take it from a person who was living a life that he tried to end because he didn't know who he was outside of sports and he didn't think that there was fulfillment beyond that, that there is purpose beyond sports and that you have not peaked and your best days are truly ahead of you. That's the glory days. Daryl Stinson, thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap for this edition of Too Much Grit to Quit on Blue Wire Hustle. I'm your host, Shelly Till. Please join me again the next time and make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform.